Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are at peace with us and we are no longer hostile to you. And this by the shedding of blood, the blood of Christ that was sprinkled on your footstool, sprinkled on it and before it. And now you rest at ease with us in Christ. And we thank you that you invite us into your house, a house on earth that is just a picture of the heavenly house, a house that according to the book of Revelation will come to the earth to reside forever one day, a house in its description that has all beautiful things made of silver and gold and everything measured out just so because you are the God of the universe and you need to be seen that way. And so as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would teach us so that we might know you better even as David exhorted Solomon, know my God, we want to know you. So bless our time together, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I read a book this week called How Not to Read the Bible. Here's its subtitle. Making sense of the anti-women, anti-science, pro-violence, pro-slavery, and other crazy-sounding parts of Scripture. This question is asked in the book. Is reading the Bible the fastest way to become an atheist? Someone else said, reading the Bible is the fast track to atheism. I was sent a little video, which I watched, in which a trusted man said, 70%, 70% of all high school graduates that go away to college who were churchgoers, once they get to college, go to church no longer. The little video said, you had a better chance at the beaches of Normandy than going to college. Now, I know I've spoken such warnings, mouthed such warnings, and I know most of us have a little something in our heart that says, I'm better than that. That won't happen to me. This book I'm talking about is a book written by a Christian. And this person, along with the church today, and this is my cry and we will see in our text today, this is David's 
concern. This is Yahweh's concern. The church today wants to make God palatable. And our culture is such, and the church has become such, that certain things about God we don't like. So, for example, one girl who said, well, you know, I, went, I, I grew up in a church, and I loved my church, and I knew all the stories, but when I went to college, I joined a study where we read through the Bible, and lo and behold, I discovered that God kills children just like Herod did. We didn't like what Herod did, but when God does it, is it okay? No, this God is a monster! Whoa. Can we really put up with a God who asks a father to slay his son? Can we really handle a God who creates a world and then destroys it in a flood? Can we put up with a God that allows a father in the Old Testament to sell his daughter into slavery? You see, there are all kinds of texts that are not, well, not palatable when misunderstood. And this fellow who's writing the book is trying to help us understand them, but he does a very poor job of it because he agrees with most of these problems. They are a problem. And they cause people to turn away. And in fact, oh, well, God is a bit violent. And God really is anti-women. Well, until you get to the New Testament. But still, he remains a little bit anti-women because, after all, wives have to submit to husbands. And that's anti-women because we live in a culture. I mean, have you thought about this? We live in a culture that thinks unless you're at the top, you're inferior. That means that we're all inferior and the only one who is superior is Joseph Biden. So when I go to work, speaking generically now, I have to submit to a boss. And so if this kind of thinking is true, my boss is superior to me because I'm an inferior who must submit. You see, the thinking really has gone awry, just as Paul says. You know, they knew God, but they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings, professing to be wise. They became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the corruptibility of man and four-footed beasts and birds and creeping things. In other words, it shouldn't be true of Christians, but it certainly is true of non-Christians that they can't think right. But the way to fix non-Christians is not to change what the Bible says, And the difficulty nowadays, which was not as true, say, 50 years ago, 
is that Christians are now thinking the same way. So 70% of high school graduates who go to college and begin to read their Bible in you know, group Bible studies at college and they see things because they've never really read it through before. I don't know what happened to their parents. It looks awful to them because they're watching their TVs, they live their life on social media, and after all, you can be anything you want to be, which is a lie, isn't it? Let me repeat, I'd like to be an airplane pilot. Just can't happen, can it? You see, but we are trying to defend God when God doesn't need a defense. So here we are at the end of Chronicles. And Chronicles 1 and 2, remember, is one book in the Old Testament and comes at the end of the Hebrew Bible, so that when Jesus said that you might become guilty of the blood shed from Abel to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who was killed between the temple and the altar, he's talking about from Genesis to Chronicles, the whole Old Testament, all that blood of the prophets and the righteous people that you Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests want to slay. You're just the sons of your father you're going to be guilty of it too. Why? Because they're going to slay apostles and prophets, but more importantly, Christ. So Chronicles is one book at the end of the Hebrew Bible, and it's written for those who have returned from exile. Under Cyrus, they went back, in 5, you know, 38, 37, people have different exact dates. They went back to Jerusalem. And they began to build the temple, first the foundation, then they waited 16 years before they got to the rest. They ran into trouble, busy, busy paneling their own houses, for which Haggai chides them. Then they get the house built up and there's all kinds of crying and weeping from the older generation who saw the temple because as you see from what we read today, the temple was very beautiful. It had all kinds of gold and silver. Just massive amount. It, it, it just because it was, as David says in chapter 22 of 1 Chronicles, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced and this house is going to be exceedingly magnificent and famous, beautiful to all the lands. That's exactly what it was. But this new temple built was a bit of a discouragement because it was smaller. They didn't have the same kind of resources, so it wasn't quite the same. And so there was crying. Why? Because the old people who went away into captivity and returned, were repentant. And they had a yearning for God and his name. And they look at this temple, and it seems so not much. Of course, we learn in the New Testament, 
that the Herodian temple, which also became quite glorious in the end, was finally destroyed. And uh, some of us think there's going to be a rebuilt temple. I don't think so, because I think it's all just a picture of people. We're the, we're the temple. And so we've gotten the grand idea today in New Covenant theology, because we live under the New Covenant, that this kind of uh, grandeur is unimportant. We don't need it. Because now God's at rest with us, thankfully, gratefully we are at rest with Him. And so now all we need is just the people temple, and we need to spruce ourselves up, and all of that's true. I'm going to talk about that again here in a minute. But then the external kinds of things like buildings, who cares if it's a tent? Who cares if your grass is all weedy outside your building? Who cares if the building needs paint? Who cares if, you know, the chairs are just folding chairs and uncomfortable? Who cares about any of that? Because after all, none of that makes any difference. But is that really true? The answer to that is no, that is not true. We used to have an elder at the, this church, uh, a, a, a good man, a great man. And he, he wasn't happy with my yard. So he would come over and, uh, I mean, after all, back then, a, a, a blind guy was mowing it part of the time. It looked pretty awful. And then my wife would mow, but we never edged along the sidewalk. And he said to me one day, Craig, that is not befitting of an elder. You know what? I sneered at it, but he's right. Then he decided, you won't believe it, but I once had hair. He decided that my hair didn't look right. So he came over to give me a haircut because, you know, I wasn't uh, stylish enough. I didn't have any up here, just around here. So he cut my hair so it would be befitting of an elder. Well, now that's comical but there's some truth to it. Why? Because God made us vice regents over his creation. And he said to Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So Bill, what was he going to do? He's meeting with God in the garden sanctuary which is a beautiful place. So is he going to go down river and create towns and cities that are ugly? That wouldn't be befitting as a vice regent. Well, things haven't changed today either. Well, not everybody has the same resources. Not everybody can do the same thing. But we need to do the best with what we have. And so First Chronicles encourages us along those lines if we think aright, and it's easy to think wrongly, uh, you know, and we all have that propensity. So if, if you would turn to First Chronicles, almost said Corinthians, chapter 28. And there are just a few things we want to say. So Chronicles is at the end of, of uh, the Old Testament. 
and it is written in conjunction with Ezra and Nehemiah, maybe all one book, to encourage those people who had gone back after exile to live by keeping the covenant because their predecessors had not done so and they had been cast out of the land. Now God is looking for a faithful restart. And of course, that faithfulness was, as you read through books like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi, post-exilic books, well, it wasn't very strong. And when you come down to the Gospels, you discover uh, the people are like sheep without a shepherd. Pray the Lord of the harvest, send harvesters. Because they weren't being taught rightly. They didn't have the right kind of examples. And so there's trouble. Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, is written to encourage people to live rightly. Of course, we don't live under that same covenant, but our covenant is not so different if I said to you old covenant versus new covenant, as it says in Jeremiah, quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the people I made with their, fore, with my, their forefathers, which they broke, but I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel after those days. And it has four stipulations. I'm going to put my law in their hearts and their minds. Hmm. That sounds very Old Testament-like. I'm going to be their God and they'll be my people. Hmm. That sounds very Old Testament-like. And they'll all mow me from the least to the ground. Oh, wait, stop. That sounds also very Old Testament-like. Because I'm going to forgive their sins and remember their iniquities no more. That sounds not so much Old Testament-like, does it? Because year by year they gathered to do what? Remember their sins at the Day of Atonement. Because Hebrews tells us bulls and goats can never take away sin. And all that blood of the Old Testament took nothing away. So, all of the Old Testament faithful, faith people were looking forward to a day when their sin would be wiped away. So, they stood before the cross, we stand after the cross. I'm going to make a new covenant because I'm going to remember their sin no more. Well, in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, we have basically three sections. Three sections. The first one is verses 1 through 10. The second one is the description of uh, the plan that David got by the Spirit which God caused him to write down by hand. So an actual, whether it was blueprint or just out in writing, was handed off to Solomon. And it was very precise. You know, 
All these lampstands, those made of gold, the weight of each gold for each lampstand. All the silver lampstands, the weight of each gold, uh, silver for each lampstand, and for the lamps upon it. And the tables of showbread, the weight. And for all of the utensils, those made of gold and those made of silver. All of this is God's stuff in his house. Just like you have a house and your stuff's your stuff, and I have a house and my stuff's my stuff. And I don't like it when you mess with my stuff. You know, we were down at the beach and staying in this house, and it really had some nice measuring cups. And I took down this big bin of coffee, because we drink coffee, and I shoved this measuring stick in this coffee thing so that every morning when I got up at 2 o'clock, I wouldn't have to go get Grace up to find the one-third cup measuring cup. So I just stuck it in there, and we used it all week, and before we were going to go, I said, Grace, if you put that thing in the box, remember to take that measuring cup out. Well, I'm the one that stuck it in there, so I'm not blaming her. It was my response. When we got home, that measuring cup was in there. Then I heard Laura had one in her thing of flour. So we messed with the stuff that belongs to that house. Kind of ran off with it. Then the last section is just really the final exhortation to Solomon. Be courageous and act. Don't be afraid or dismayed because God will not leave you. He won't abandon you until this whole project is done. doesn't mean he'll abandon afterwards. He's just saying God will be with you. So, in, in Chronicles, in these chapters, God with us, or God with Solomon, God with David, God with Israel, God with the people. This is just the language that we pick up in Matthew chapter 1. His name shall be called Emmanuel, that is, God with you. And so, now that we've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit resides in us, God is always with us. Well, this is the encouragement. Well, so now when you pick up that last statement at the end of the chapter, you're just picking up something that was said to Joshua. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, also in Numbers, and also in Deuteronomy, uh, yeah, 31, and also in Joshua chapter 1, repeated overly to Joshua as, as, as Moses hands the mantle off to Joshua. This is exactly what he says. Be courageous and act. Don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, for God will never leave you nor forsake you. Picked up in the new covenant in Hebrews chapter 13, where we're exhorted not to be gripped by the love of money, because God will take care of us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. You see, the Bible flows through just Oh, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. It's, it's the greatest thing one could possibly read. But in, uh, in verses 1 through 10, then verse 8 is a final. David has gathered all of, not all of Israel, but all of the officials of Israel. All the guys that are over his property and his livestock. All the army with the commanders of divisions, 
all the heads of each tribe, all the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds. He's brought them all together because now it's time to turn over kingship to Solomon. And so David wants these people to know, I'm going to put Solomon on the throne, and don't you get upset. Now Solomon's going to be in charge of you. That's what that's all about. And then he goes on to tell us that he wanted to build a house for God. And God said, no. You've said much blood, and you're a man of many wars. Instead, I've chosen your son Solomon to build a house. And David says this house is going to contain the Ark of the Covenant and the footstool of our God. And so the passages that you've seen this morning, they surround that idea. Out of Matthew, because we're doing Gospels every Sunday, I picked the one that speaks about Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We didn't read that. We read the part that said, David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then we read Psalm 99 in the congregational psalm reading about the footstool of God. We could turn to Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool which tells us something. That tells us that that box with the covering on top of it is a picture of the earth. Now, so we realize that when we look at the temple, the variations, take the tabernacle, it's easier to see there, the variations from bronze to silver to gold are a way of doing something horizontally that is to be pictured vertically. We might have to start the potluck late. Uh, so, so we go from this mountain, the bronze altar, and then we move up vertically. It's like a tent, a cloud hovering over the altar, and we go into the first room, and we're up in the heavens where we have the lampstands like the sun and the moon and the stars. And then you go beyond that and you pass through this blue veil with cherubim upon it and you go into the heavens above the heavens. So you have the earth and then you have the heavens and then you have the waters above the heavens, Genesis chapter 1, and then you go into the heavens where God's throne room is. And we discover from Isaiah 66 that God's footstool is the earth. And so we go into the Holy of Holies and here's this Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant is a thing called a kephoret, which is the footstool. In our passage, down in verse 11, as he describes it, it's called the mercy seat. And that's the way it's picked up in your translations, for example, in Romans and Hebrews, where we see the word mercy seat, but that's not the word. The word is covering. So we have this ark, and inside the ark we have ten commandments. That's the earth. What does that tell us? 
It tells us that this whole earth is to be governed by Ten Commandments. So when God puts Joe Biden as president or any other government leader around the world in charge of a country, what's to govern that country is what's in the earth, the ark with its covenant. Of course, now, the old covenant has been changed into the new covenant which makes every government leader, including Joe Biden, responsible before God. But you already know that from Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. You, you know that. Joe Biden may not know it. Most government leaders around the world may not. Putin may not know it. But he's going to answer. Because in the earth, a covenant's been given. And it's to govern the earth. And on top of that is this covering. And on this covering are two angels attached to the covering made out of gold with their wings overstretched over this covering. Now in the temple, the fixed temple, the permanent temple, there are going to be two other angels who spread their wings out like this from side to side and they touch in the center and this room, the old holy room in the tabernacle was 10 by 10, 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. The new Holy of Holies is 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits, and these angels span all the way across, so their wings also overcover the kephoret. And when you get down to the end of the description, it talks about the gold for the chariot, that is, the cherubim, even the cherubim. That's because these four angels compose a chariot on which God rides, like in Isaiah chapter 19. God rides on the chariot of the clouds. Well, the cloud, of course, is the glory cloud. So that's the picture. And, and, and these, these, these uh, angels have their wings spread out, and they're looking over it, and it's where God sits on his throne. Well, of course, God's throne is in heaven, but this is a throne where his name belongs. So David says, well, I intended to build a house for the ark of the covenant and the footstool of our God, but God said, no. No, you're a man of blood, and you've been engaged in many wars. I'm going to take Solomon, Solomon's name means peace. And he's going to be a man of rest. Just a, another word related to Solomon. Why? Why can't David build it? Here's why. Because David shed blood. But the blood that's going to be shed at this house is not man's blood, not animal's blood, but Jesus Christ's blood. And we have a picture on the earth that we couldn't see in heaven, but in heaven, according to Hebrews 9 and 10, Jesus ascended with blood 
and it was put in not a picture of what's in the heaven, but in the heavens itself, so that God is satisfied. And of course, you've all heard this before. So you have these, you have these angels who got their, they're stretched out like this with their wings over, and God is enthroned above, and here's this covering, which is a picture of the heavens, the heavens you can look at and see, not the heavens above the water, but the heavens. And blood is sprinkled right on top of this lid. So the God who's enthroned up here on the angel's wings, he looks down at the earth through blood. And in the earth are these Ten Commandments that have been totally violated like one in our congregation says, I'm broker than the Ten Commandments. You're supposed to smile at that. But God looks down through blood and he's satisfied. I intended to build this house, but God said, no, you're a man of bloodshed. So your son Solomon will build it. So he's telling this to the commanders and the officials, the people that are now going to be under the charge of Solomon. And look at what he says in verse 8. He's talking to them now. So in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, of Yahweh, and in the hearing of our God. So he's, he's, he's giving the, the, the uh, uh, what's the word? I want? The solemnity of what's going on. Look, this is for all of Israel, and God is listening. God's hearing what I say. So here's, here's what he says to these commanders, these officials, these people that are in charge of all the king's stuff. This is what he says. Observe and seek after all the commandments of Yahweh. Observe and seek after all the commandments of Yahweh. Yahweh, your God, in order that you may, in order that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. Now, bequeath just means it's going to become an inheritance. So here he is in, in this huge transition. When we move from Moses to Joshua, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. When we move from the tabernacle to the temple, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, your God is with you. So what do you need to do? Here's what he says to the people. Not, not just all of Israel now, it's true of all of Israel, but now to the people who carry the authority, the weight of the nation like our president and our senators and our congressmen and, 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 and our uh, uh, judges. This is what God would say to them. This is what David has said. So, now, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of Yahweh, and in the hearing of our God, here's what I want you to do. Observe and seek after all the commandments of Yahweh your God so that you can possess the land and bequeath it to your children. Now, just for one second, transpose that to the church.
from one generation to the next. Because Revelation 2 and 3 threaten the church. Jesus threatens the church. Ephesus. If you don't stand in love, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your lampstand away. Now, Ephesus, if you want to bequeath this lampstand to your children, if you want your children to have what you have, what do you have to do? Here it is. Observe and seek after all the commandments of Yahweh. Observe. Now, remember, the, these, this is really crucial. The tabernacle and the temple are garden pictures as well as cosmic pictures. They're garden pictures. They take you back to the garden. And in the gardens, God said to Adam, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cultivate and keep the garden. Two Hebrew words, avod, I want you to serve, and shamar, and guard. Well, it's garden terminology, but when you move it into spiritual terminology, you're serving God in his garden, in his tabernacle, in his temple. You're guarding what God has given in his garden, in his tabernacle, in his temple. And that's what he says to these guys. Observe and seek after all the commandments. In other words, I want you to guard the commandments, and I want you to seek them out. Now, we're talking about people who don't live in New Testament days. They live in Old Testament days. When all those crazy-sounding Scripture texts were so annoying. Were they? No. So, just an aside, dads. You know, your kids are going to grow up, and the question is, have you taken all those crazy-sounding Old Testament texts and shown to your children why they're beautiful and wonderful and one should guard them and seek after them? Look at verse 9. Now he turns to Solomon. As for you, my son, Solomon, know the God of your father. Okay, so let me just put this in context. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In all your ways, know him. And he'll make your paths straight or right or just. There are a myriad of possible interpretations, I mean translations there. Know the God of your father. In other words, you, you've seen who my God is. You've seen how my God has dealt with me. You've seen how I've dealt with my God. Now, know that God. And do what? And serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Now, the word whole heart, the word whole is the word Solomon. Serve him with a heart that's at rest. Now, this is in the context of commandments. Meaning, you know, you're easy with the Old Testament and what it says. 
because you've thought about it, you've meditated on it, you've researched it, you've given yourself to it, and my goodness, it makes sense so you can be easy at peace with the Old Testament. With a whole heart, with a Solomon heart, and a willing mind, and the willing mind is a word that means to delight in. That is, Solomon, you've got to serve God and what he says with a heart that's at rest, with peace with God. You're you're happy with God, and you delight in God and what he says. The church today is not delighting in God and what he says. We're falling apart. We're listening to our culture. Friends, this must become a centerpiece of prayer. Reformation, revival of the church. We're on the way down. For the Lord searches all hearts. It's the same word as seek. He seeks our hearts. And he understands. We we still have half an hour. Now I lost my place. Uh, and, And the Lord, Yahweh, searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts, if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. How do you seek the Lord? Why you seek him in his word. How he makes himself known. That's his revelation. So seek him out. Seek after him, Solomon, with a Solomon heart, a resting heart, one that's resting in what God says, and a willing mind, one that's delighting in what he says. Now you got to stop and think about that because, you know, you, you, you take... You take uh, what this book is saying, and he's catering to what people say. He, he halfway, maybe more than halfway, agrees with what they say. And, and, and in other words, you know, life just isn't fair when an employee should have to obey an employer. That means he's inferior. So I, I don't know what's going to happen in the work world. We're going to have to do something there. Life just isn't fair when somebody gets paid more than someone else. You know, the truth of the matter is, if I went to work for a company that was in manufacturing, and I worked in manufacturing, and the guy next to me who could see worked in manufacturing, who would produce more? I hate to admit it, he would. So who should get paid more? He should. But I might say, that's not fair. Makes me feel, it hurts my emotions. I, I, I get my emotions hurt every now and then, you know. Uh, Grace knows about it. It happened just this last week. I was not a happy man for a couple of days. Why? I'll tell you why. Because I feel like half a man. My wife can go out and do anything. She's good at it. And I can't do much of 
anything except sit in a chair and read a book. And, you know, and you'd think a guy would be happy that he gets paid to read a book. But, you know, we always look at the other side. But then I could say, well, God, this just isn't fair. Why are you doing this? Somebody might say, well, it's the result of sin. Yeah, that's true, but uh, my wife can see. I think she's a sinner. God chose it. That's, was, that was Moses' complaint. Oh, I'm not eloquent of speech. And God gets a little upset with him. Who made the hearing hear and the dumb dumb? Who made the seeing see and the blind blind? Was it not I, Yahweh? Is that fair? That's a wrong way to think, isn't it? And so he's saying, look, Solomon, seek the Lord with a heart that's at rest with God with a mind that delights in the Word of God. If you seek Him out, He'll let Himself be found. What's the opposite of seeking? Rejecting. But if you forsake Him, He will reject you forever. Look at verse 10. Consider now, for Yahweh has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary, be courageous and act. So God chooses. Is that fair? No, Christians today don't seem to think it's very fair. But just up above, David describes how Yahweh chose the tribe of Judah to be a leader in the nation. And out of the tribe of Judah, Yahweh chose his family. And out of all the sons of his family, Yahweh chose him to rule. And he has many sons. And out of all of his sons, Yahweh chose Solomon to rule. So, here's what Solomon, here's what you need. Consider now, for Yahweh has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. A house for where this Ark of the Covenant, with its covering, with its cherubim over it, where God is going to sit enthroned. How important is that? It's so important. There's a blueprint written by David for Solomon to follow. It has to be done just so. So, you need to be courageous, and you need to act. Well, we don't have a building to build. I mean, we already have a building here, and it was done in fine fashion. You know, I suppose it could have been better, but it was more money than we had at the time. But here it is. We don't need to build. But of course, the building in one sense is nothing. What is everything is everybody who sits in this building that says, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm with that local assembly McKinney Bible Church, and we are just a little temple. And in this temple, God is enthroned by his spirit. And what matters then is the people. 
And uh, for all of us who are older, or for all of us who have kids, you know, we're, of course, concerned about our kids. Solomon was concerned about a nation. And so Solomon, and you leaders, if you do this, this, and this, you will bequeath this to your children after you. And BC adults, if you do this, 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 and this, you will bequeath this to your children after you. That is the promise of Scripture. Bring up a child in the way he shall go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. I know some think that is not a promise, but it's a promise. You can count on it. And so, we don't always teach it that way, and so... That's my bad, and I'm sorry about that. But here it is. We have instruction. Guard the commandments. Keep them. Seek Yahweh. He'll let you find him. So to summarize it in just one simple verse that we all know, everybody in this room I'm sure can quote it. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in Yahweh. With all your heart. With a Solomon heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. You know what that means. You stand and you lean against a fence that totters, it's going to fall over and you're going to fall with it. And if you lean on your own understanding, which our culture and the church is doing right now, you lean on our own understanding, well, what are we going to do? We're going to fall down. Where do we go? We go to God's Word. Does it trouble us sometimes? Yeah, it troubles us. Until we think it through. Until God says, ah, seek me, seek me here, seek me right here. I'll let, I'll let you find me. Seek me right here. Here's a troubling. Seek me right here. I'll let you find me. Friends, brothers and sisters, I'm at the end of what I'm going to say, and I only said one-third of what I wanted to say. But here we are in a country that's in trouble. I know a lot of you are concerned about the country. I'm certainly concerned about the country. But I want to say it one more time. The country... The country's problem is not Joe Biden. The country's problem is not the leaders we have. The country's problem is the church. It's us. It's time. Yeah, we want a reinvigorated America. We want a conservative country that uh, has a Judeo-Christian. We want all of that, but it's not going to come it's not time to reclaim America. It's time to reclaim the church. And America will be reclaimed. And David's giving just absolutely stunning advice here when he talks to the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds and the princes over each tribe and all of his property managers, and all of his livestock managers, and he's telling them, look, I was going to do this, but God said, no, Solomon's going to do it, so now here's what you do. Here's what you do. Stand with me.
It's a terrible thing, Lord, that your church has begun to lean on their own thinking. And so, for all of us in this room, I'm sure way too often we lean on our own thinking. Help us to determine, to decide, to vow before you that we will lean on your thinking and then we will trust it. And when we don't understand, we'll seek and you promise we'll find you. And Lord, we pray for the church at large that's looking like every lost person instead of thinking biblically, we think culturally. And so we become dissatisfied with you because we have learned from our culture that if you're a loving God, you will do this, that, and the other thing for us. Instead, you have the wisdom of a father to chasten us, to try us, to make us all different and put us in spots that challenge us. Why? Because in your temple, your name will be great. And as your spirit works in us, people will see how Christians really live because they have a whole heart and a mind that delights in God. Make us into that kind of people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.